Phoebe Hoban is an American journalist and author of the best-selling biography Basquiat, A Quick Killing in Art. This is Phoebe Hoban. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with uh, Phoebe Hoban. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, so you wrote a, um, a biography of uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, which is how I got interested in you. Um, why did you decide to write this book? That's a very long and convoluted story, but at the time I was writing for New York Magazine, I was writing a lot of stories that that focused on culture, and my particular interest and focus was cultural controversy. Uh, I had just done a profile of Lisa Phillips, now the director of the New Museum, but at the time she was at the Whitney, and uh, it was just a simple profile. It wasn't a controversy. But I asked her during the interview what had happened to Basquiat, because not long before that, and I'm not going to look up the date right now, but I would say it was within a year or less than a year before, he had been on the cover of the Sunday Times magazine in a very famous photograph, barefoot, in an Armani-splattered suit, uh, rather a paint-spattered Armani suit, uh, looking very regal and very uh, pissed off. And uh, and he was kind of the talk of the town, uh, but the but it was a little bit of an insulting uh, article in that it was called the marketing of an art uh, something like the marketing of an art star. And I don't know whether you're splicing this or not. We can correct it. But it, it was a famous article, a famous photograph that was wild, widely circulated. So uh, Lisa Phillips told me that um, he was a recluse. Uh, he was a junkie. It was a really sad story. He was a total burnout and. Uh, he didn't even answer his phone uh, anymore, and if you wanted to contact him, you had to telegram, you know, you had to send him a telegram. So I dutifully reported all this back to my editor and, you know, and said it might be a, a good story, and the more I looked into it, the more I thought that it would be a terribly exploitative thing to write a story about practically the only black art star and have it be a tragedy, have it be a burnout story. My editor was very pissed off at me because he thought it was a good story idea, but I didn't feel comfortable or that it would be ethical, and it was not. I just didn't want to do it. About three or four weeks later, he died. Um, so then my editor came back to me and said, now do you want to do the story? And I said, yeah, now it's a news story. So I did the story. Um, it was not a fun story to write. It was really upsetting uh, to learn um you know, how painful his life had been in many ways, and uh, I was happy when it was done. It got a lot of attention, uh, including attention from an editor who wanted me to write a book that I did not want to write. Um, so I um, didn't know this editor. I ran into her at a friend's book party, but she kept after me, and I'm one of these overachieving kind of Jewish intellectual types, and I just thought, okay, I'll write the proposal, they'll tell me it's brilliant, and then I'll tell them I don't want to do it. So I won't have failed, but I won't have to do it. Unfortunately, she did love the book. It was a good time in my life for me to write my first book, so I did it. Um, I, In retrospect, because I've now written two other biographies, if you're working full-time and trying to write a biography, the biography ends up taking about eight years on and off, which is what the Basquiat book took. It also, given the publishing world, given what it was back then, I went through many different editors, not because they didn't like me, but because they moved to a different job or got fired or had nervous breakdowns or whatever, but I would suddenly be told that I had a new editor. 
Long story short, the book finally got published in um, September of 1998, and that's how I ended up writing it. I mean, I'm very proud of the book. I do think it's become something of a, a classic. One of my aims in writing it was to chronicle the New York uh, the New York cultural world of the time. I remember feeling very competitive with um, with Bret Easton Ellis and with um, uh, Tamara Jan- um, Janowitz and uh, who's the other guy? The one that wrote Less Than Zero. I'm not sure. Uh, well, you should know probably, but uh, it's a very famous book. I'm going to Google it and tell you in a second. But um, anyway, I remember thinking I could have written these books. So I decided that since I was very steeped in uh, the um, that whole world, I would, yeah, actually, Betty Sinellis did write Less Than Zero, so I had that right. Anyway, um, I was very steeped in that whole world, and I felt that I could do as good a job telling that story as they told it fictionally. I could do it in a nonfiction form. Also, because Basquiat died at such a very young age and his career was so short and so meteoric, there wasn't that much you could say about somebody who died at like, you know, 27. Um, It just, his life was too short. So I needed to open up the story and the fact that he emerged into such a a hotbed of, um, you know, art world greed and speed, but also uh, incredible, uh, rich and wonderful uh, cultural cross-pollination between like fashion and art and music, all of that um, made for a very good um, background or kind of, you know, crucible out of which he emerged. Yeah, and, and you alluded to the fact that he, he did have a, a, certainly a troubled life, and that the, the, the level of uncomfortability in talking about that while he was alive and, and sort of feeling like, oh, I don't want to take advantage or exploit the situation for my own you know, journalistic career. Is that something that you think that feeling was shared among a lot of other people in the art world? Or do you think that most people were willing to sort of jump on him and and exploit him for whatever they could? I was still accused of being racist because I just happened to be white and happened to be a woman. So I got a lot of, you know, there were people that basically didn't think a white woman should have written this book but you know that's their problem not mine i don't i can't speak to my fellow journalists i just know that i felt particularly because he was black that it would be almost racist to write an article when he was down and out just because he was down and out and by the way i just want to correct it it's Tama Janowitz who wrote Cannibal of New York but you know she's um, both she and Bret Easton Ellis sort of famously nailed what it was like for young people and I mean you know they they really got the whole club scene and the drug scene and the whole thing down perfectly I, I see and, and one of the interesting things when speaking about his early life is that uh, when he was you know a, a very young man like in, in elementary school high school his life was troubled but almost in uh, in a very particular way like he he got kicked out of high school for pieing his principal that that almost seems. Let me interrupt you for a minute. First of all, I just want to say that I hate to get titles wrong. Sure. Janowitz's book was called A Cannibal in Manhattan. Oh, Reddy yeah. Sinellis's book was called Less Than Zero, which later became a really wonderful movie. Um, Basquiat had a troubled life from the time he was born. His mother was in and out of mental institutions. His father 
I think I can validly say was abuse, physically abusive to him, not sexually, but just really rough with him. And uh, Basquiat accused him of stabbing him. Um, I he was he ran away from home, at, you know, be, at around the age of 15, and was living in Washington Square Park. He didn't become troubled when he became a street artist. He had it, you know, he adored his mother from whom he got most of his art and, you know, art knowledge. She took him to a lot of museums and the theater and so on. He, he, you know, he went to City as, um, as school because he was a creative kid and City as school used the city as kind of, uh, you know, an educational tool in itself. You know, took the kids to museums, etc. And he was, you know, an angry young man. And sorry, just just to interrupt, City as School was the high school he wound up going to, correct? Yes. Okay. So he was kind of a classic angry young man, and he was very creative. Uh, and he and Al Diaz created this character, this fictional character named Samo, uh, who was kind of, you know, uh, a you know, a sort of a cult leader type, religious type, you know, um, guru uh, with a made-up religion. And they 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 did, uh, City of School had a school newspaper, and Samo made his appearance first in the newspaper. Then they went around New York um, famously writing this sort of Samo, really what amounted to poetry, very cryptic poetry on the walls very strategically placed from Basquiat's point of view near various galleries. So he always had his eye on wanting to be a famous artist, Andy Warhol being his idol. And it's at one point you mentioned Andy Warhol, and I want to get into his relationship with him. But while he's he he uh, his father kicks him out at 17 because he decides to drop out. What? His father didn't kick him out at 17. He left home at 15. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, I, I thought I had read that somewhere. I guess I'm wrong. Um, but he, okay, so he's on the street at 15 then? Uh, 15 or 16, living in Washington Square Park, where there were other kids living too. There were several sort of graffiti groups uh, that lived there. Uh, okay, and, and so... Ed- His father went to get him and bring him home when he was 17 or something like that. Again, I wrote the book. Uh, the book came out about 21 years ago, right. and I did the research for the book eight years before that. And right. I haven't reread the book since then. So this is just sort of what I remember. Uh, okay, no worries. But in any case, he's he's living on his own at a pretty young age. And he's is his goal already to establish himself as a, a, a you know, quote-unquote, legit mainstream artist? Yes, his goal his entire life was to be a famous artist. He told people he would be famous. That's what he wanted, was to be famous. I see. And that's... um, Where do you think that drive in particular came from? Because I think that's a lot of, um, you know... A lot of people that are creative want to be famous, but in Basquiat's case, you know, he was born in 1960, which was sort of the beginning of the pop era. Andy Warhol was, you know, slowly but surely becoming a star. Um, Celebrity was becoming very mainstream. There were a whole lot of convergent factors. It would not be at at all unusual for a young... That's why people came to New York. I mean, he happened to have been born in Brooklyn, but people... New York was a mecca for young people that wanted to become famous. Mm -hmm. That's what it was at that time. 
So it was not unusual that he wanted to be famous at all. I, I see. And, and he, he was doing a lot of things in addition to just straight art and, and graffiti at this point, right? He was in bands and so on. That Was that kind of typical yeah. for people in that milieu? Uh, could you please repeat the second part of your question? Sure. Is that kind of, um, for people in New York at that ta- period of time? Yes, I think I already told you that New York was an incredibly rich um, sort of hotbed of cross-pollination between fashion, music, art, you know, I mean, all the clubs. That's what, you know, that was the whole scene. It was all kind of a medley of all those things feeding into each other and also being influenced by punk rock coming over from Britain. So he was right in the heart of it. I gotcha. Um, so how did he break through? Well, I mean, the Samo writings put him on the map. Everybody wanted to know who Samo was, just the way everybody wanted to know who the radiant baby artist Keith Haring was. And uh, Basquiat, again, wanting to be famous, being not that bad at marketing himself, broke off his his, his creative relationship with Al Diaz after doing an interview uh, in uh, the Village Voice in which he revealed that they were the the two that were doing the Samo writings. And... um, he was discovered at PS1. Uh, Diego uh, Cortez, who was uh, one of the founders of the Mud Club, which is one of the places where Basquiat played with his band, um, he curated uh, a very important show um, called New York New Wave at PS1. And Nina Nose, he brought several. Um, well-known gallerist to come look at the art, and Anina Nose was among them, and she offered Basquiat uh, a studio in the basement of her gallery, and uh, she offered him a, a stipend, and that's how he got started. And um, it, at, at one point, there's an article about him in, in Art Forum magazine. I think it's called something like The Radiant Child. Correct me if I'm wrong. And, and Yeah, Rene Ricard also put him on the map. map. Rene Ricard was a very brilliant critic and artist and kind of man about town. And he was one of the first people to write about Basquiat and to kind of, you know, compare him to Dubuffet and to kind of anoint him as an art star. And that also was uh, very influential in Basquiat's career. And at this point in art history, I know you have people sort of like around the same time, like Keith Haring, who came from sort of the street art world. And nowadays it's kind of, it's almost like not standard, but people like Banksy are able to just drift into the legitimate. I wouldn't even compare them. I mean, both Keith Haring and Basquiat came from middle class backgrounds. Basquiat grew up in a brownstone that his father owned in a nice part of Brooklyn. Keith Haring, you know, was a suburban kid. Uh, Richard Hamilton, another street artist of the time, was you know who came from Canada. None of these people were street people, and they weren't really graffiti artists because they didn't tag trains. There were whole groups of people, some of whom Basquiat was friendly with and of whom he was very supportive uh, at a certain point, uh, like Lee Quinones. I mean, wildly talented people, but they were tagging trains. That's what they mostly did. Basquiat didn't tag trains. He wasn't one of their group. Okay. Does that if someone doesn't tag trains, is that the that that's a major distinction? It's as not that simple.
simple, it's really not that simple, and it's way too complicated to get into. I mean, how how you define graffiti art is cave art, graffiti art. I mean, graffiti art right. essentially means art on the walls. So, yeah, all these people that did art on the walls or on caves are graffiti artists. But Basquiat was not one of the graffiti gang. He was not known for being... You know, people did lump him in with a graffiti artist, but he wasn't really a graffiti artist per se. Okay. Um, so it, most of the what he broke through for, the stuff that people saw, wasn't the, the same-o stuff, or was it, you know, stuff yes, he didn't... it was. That's what he was known for, was the poetry. Uh, but it wasn't like typical graffiti that was done on the trains, most of which was, you know, kind of in color and very stylized, and it was all about the words. Right, and in his his paintings, he uses a lot of words as well, and that kind of... Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he did come of age artistically at the same time as a graffiti artist. There is kind of a blurred boundary between the two. But I would say he did street poetry, and he wasn't one of the known graffiti gang mem- members. You know, like Wild Style, this famous graffiti movie with, done by Charlie Ahern that is a very good documentary of the graffiti movement. Basquiat isn't really part of that. You know, there were all kinds of, uh, you know, graffiti gangs that um, did graffiti and sometimes did it together. And, they, you know, there was Lady Pink. There were all kinds of famous people that are still famous. Some of them are still showing. And, um, you know, although they, there was a lull at one point when they kind of were exploited and then dropped, but they're back in fashion again. Um, Basquiat was not really among them, and he didn't like to be lumped with them, even though he was supportive of them. Sure. So here, here's my question then. So at one point in time in the history of art, you had people who were basically painting in their studios and they would show at galleries and it, then there comes a time where people could do, say, if you want to call it graffiti or if you want to call it street uh, poetry, whatever you want to call it, they're, they're painting on the sides of buildings, right? So was this, a, a, how new was that phenomenon of people... It wasn't new. Norman Mailer, Mailer wrote a whole book about graffiti in L.A. I really think we should get off this tack. I think you're going down the wrong rabbit hole. I really do. I, it helped Basquiat that graffiti was uh, in fashion at that time. I mean, that's not... A, I, I don't mean to demean it. It was a, a valid art form, uh, an exciting art form even, even though it was also vandalism. But Basquiat was not did not set out to be a graffiti artist, and he wasn't really classically a graffiti artist. And if you're asking if this was the known pathway to fame at that time, no, not necessarily. Most of those graffiti artists got wined and dined and flown all over the world and then dropped like hotcakes when graffiti was not of the moment. And then they got picked up again a decade or more later by some of the galleries who had shown them originally. So I... I don't quite understand why you're pursuing this so, you know, aggressively, but it's not, uh, I, I've said everything I want to say about it. Graffiti uh, is okay. old no, and that's, cave that's... art. I have an entire chapter about it, which maybe you read and maybe you didn't. It's not a new art form. It, it didn't become a way to get famous. It happened. Right. These kids weren't doing it necessarily to get famous. They got famous and then they got dropped in a really kind of disgusting, exploitative way. Bank, you know, I don't think Banksy is uh, the same phenomenon whatsoever. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so 
at, at this period of time, uh, is he, while he's on the upswing, is he happy? He was a very volatile person. He was, I think he was a tortured soul. Almost everybody I talked to thought that he was a tortured soul. And in part it came, as it often does, from his childhood. You know, he didn't feel loved and respected by his father. He adored his mother, but she wasn't available to him. He was a black, um, you know, a black artist in a in really a white world that was a racist world that was blatantly racist um and and he was uh, alone in that world pretty much at that time he was really the only black artist that achieved that level of fame many of the graffiti artists were black but they didn't achieve global fame in galleries etc they did, they weren't on the front page of the, you know, the cover of sunday times magazine um he was tormented his whole life that you know that's why he turned to drugs. I see. I mean, did he enjoy being able to take his girlfriends out to, you know, Mr. Chow's and to be able to fly friends around the world and to be able to buy Armani suits and to be able to snort mountains of Coke? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he enjoyed it. But he was definitely a tormented soul. And, and the paintings themselves, though, are very... Um... Would you describe them as as beautiful? I would describe them as angry. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, I said earlier he was kind of a classic angry young man. The paintings are very political. They're all about what it's like to be black in a racist country. That's what they're about. The language is about that. The imagery is about that. The art historical references are about that. Basquiat, you know, suffered from being black in a racist society. And um, being famous didn't change that. Right. And if anything, fame probably made it worse because then you have a whole new vector of pressures to deal with, right? Yeah, of, of course. And, you know, he did suffer the classic kind of racism that... Um, you know, certainly middle-class blacks um, experience even to this day where, you know, you couldn't get a cab, um, you know, all the things he, you know, he would, they would, you know, I mean, there's a famous story about, I don't know whether it's Charlie Parker, Parker or Thelonious Monk having to use the servant's entrance at one of the clubs. I mean, Thelonious Monk was a genius. Right. It didn't matter. He was black. And that's what it was like for Basquiat. At the same time, he was held up as kind of, you know, uh, an exotic, some kind of, you know, wonderful exotic because he was he was charismatic, he was good-looking, he, you know, played to the press. I mean, I think you had to have been there at that time to have some grasp of it or at least to have read my book from beginning to end. I mean, I don't think some of, some of your, I think your questions are, intelligent but they don't I don't really relate to some of them because they don't really have anything to do with what it was like back then oh well that's that's my uh my bad um I I certainly wasn't around back in New York uh, no, during that time be. you didn't have any you didn't have any control over when you were born look it's not 
it's an obvious comparison to compare them to Banksy, but it's not the same thing. I mean, it's just I, 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 I hear you. I, the I, same kind of culture. He was in a different country. Uh, you know, people don't even know what Banksy looks like, even though I've seen the Banksy documentary. You know, that was not Basquiat. Everybody knew what Basquiat looked like. He, people imitated his hairstyle, for God's sake. Right. Way, way different. I got it. Um, so my question, uh, when we talk about the fame aspect of it, how much of what the, the problem that that caused was something where he wanted to be famous and then he gets it and there's almost sort of a, a, a resenting of the success or what the success actually looked like wasn't what he he thought he was bargaining for. Basquiat wanted love, you know, he wanted paternal love. He h hoped to get it from Andy Warhol and to a certain extent he did, although it was a way more complicated than straight, you know, father figure love. But I don't, you know, I, I'm sure you listen to rock music, right? So how many rock musicians wanted to be famous and got famous and died of drug overdoses? It's, it's a standard, I mean, it's a cliche almost. Right. So, you know, fame and drugs and overdosing, they go together. It's not, it's not a new story. It wasn't a new story in Basquiat's time. And even some of his idols, like Charlie Parker, died that way. You know, I mean... <sighs> Those things are entwined. They're not new. Right. And there there are some hints that you mentioned Charlie Parker, that he he also mentioned Charlie Parker at some points where, where he was talking about the heroin and uh, almost romanticizing that way of, of life. Charlie Parker was one of his idols. There are Charlie Parker references in many of his paintings. One of them even, I think, has Charlie Parker in the title. He even did something about Charlie Parker's daughter who died. I mean, Charlie Parker was one of his main idols, as was Hank Aaron, the ba baseball star who recently died. So, yes, he in many ways modeled his life, you know, maybe not consciously, but um, he considered Charlie Parker a role model. And, and what was his relationship like with Andy Warhol? Well, that's an entirely different conversation, and it would take way longer than an hour. But let's just say that he had always wanted to meet Andy Warhol. I wouldn't say Andy Warhol was racist, but he was scared of Basquiat. He was, you know, kind of rough and wild, and he was just scared of him. He, various people uh, tried to introduce him over the years, um, including um, Glenn O'Brien, uh, who was you know, worked at interview and uh, very much wanted, bus, you know, wanted to make that uh, relationship happen. Anyway, eventually he did get kind of adopted by Andy Warhol, who no doubt had the hots for him. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, but it was, as far as I could tell, never a sexual relationship per se. Um, but Andy Warhol didn't do drugs, and he wanted Basquiat to get off it, off them, and he was always trying to get Basquiat to do a exercise regime and, you know, be a vegetarian and take care of his body and get off drugs. And so, you know, eventually, um, I mean, it was a very good relationship in many ways, but they did a painting collaboration together that turned out to be kind of a critical disaster. And the... Um, the the reviews were scathing, and Basquiat just didn't, he sort of distanced himself from Warhol after that. He was completely devastated when Warhol died, and he didn't really survive Warhol's death. 
And if you want to know more about it, there's an entire chapter in my book devoted to Warhol and his influence on, you know, talented and wild young people and how many of them died as a result. He was considered kind of a vampire in a way, but, um, you know, also a genius. And I, I really don't think I could do it justice in this interview. Fair enough. It was a very complicated relationship. But was there, I do think that they loved each other and respected each other, and I think it was an important relationship for both of them. It ended badly. Uh, well, what about some of his other uh, artistic influences? Uh, do, he, he mentioned Picasso at points in his life. Do, do we know who, um, who played a big role in the development of, of his style, etc.? almost photographic memory and he would just leave reference books all over the place in his studio and walk on them and you know etc he was influenced by everything from cartoons uh which he referenced with the crown uh symbol in many of his paintings and even in his samo writings um to da vinci du buffet uh cy twombly um you know picasso for sure um it, it was very uh he was he had an excellent, he was a wonderful synthesizer. I mean, I think I make that point in my book. He just had a kind of antenna for things that worked, whether it was music or fashion or, you know, a, a art form. And he was able to sort of pull a lot of things together and, and make them work in almost kind of an automatic writing kind of way. I mean, it just came to him naturally. And I've heard like lay people uh, criticize his art when I've, I've seen it at like the Broad, for instance. Um, and, and people do this with a lot of, you know, like especially like more modern or contemporary art that, you know, oh, this is so simplistic. My my four year old could have painted this, these kinds of things. I don't think that's true of a lot of his paintings, but it's it, it, do, do you have any um, do you have any response to those kinds of uh, criticisms? Yeah, it's really hard to think like a child when you're an adult. I mean, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of creative people maintain the kind of sense of wonder and the cognitive dissonance required to have a certain perspective on life that normal people don't have. It sometimes causes them a lot of pain. Uh, I did in Basquiat's case. But I don't think, I think his paintings are very canny. They're very clever. They're very angry. They're very political. They're very good. Um, I, I will say that when I started the book, I did not have as much respect for his art as I do now. I think that over time, and it's not just because of the monetary appreciation, over time it's become very clear that he did capture a moment in a masterly way, that there was nobody else quite like him before or since, and that he is part of the Pantheon. You know, he did enter the canon, and it's not simply because the art world likes to make money. It's partly because his work has something real that you can feel. There's a certain verve. There's a certain vibrancy. Part of it's the anger. Part of it's the intelligent references. Uh, right, and, and so where do you think he, he stands in the, the history of art today? I, I just told you, I think he's, you know, in the pantheon. I think when people talk about great 20th century artists, Basquiat is one of them. You know, I, it, I, please don't ask me if he's as great as Picasso. No, he didn't change the world. You know, he wasn't somebody who 
caused a tectonic shift in the art world the way somebody like Picasso did or Matisse did. But in his own way, he was very, he was a very important artist, not the least because he was black and managed to still achieve that level of um, success. So um, I think he is a, you know, an important 20th century artist. I think he belongs in the canon at this point. Um, I think that art historically, his work will continue to be studied um, from different perspectives. Um, like all art, people will use it to serve their own purposes um, in various ways. There's been lots of, um, you know, coming very late to the game, um, you know, black curators and et cetera, and black critics who, you know, discovered Basquiat kind of on the late side because they didn't love him when he was making his art, most of them. But, um, you know, they've all got their own perspective on um, how he used black culture and, uh, you know, musical idioms and all kinds of things. And all that stuff is, um, it's interesting. It helps keep his work alive. Um, is some of it is more intelligent uh, and more truthful than others. Some of it is purely self-serving, which I won't get into. But um, I think he's an important artist. I think you can say he's a major 20th century artist, without a doubt. Late 20th century artist. He certainly is more important um, than some of his peers at the time. And I don't want to put any of them down, because um, I like some of their work. But he's, he outstrips them. Uh, Phoebe, I think that's a good note to end it on. Uh, it... Okay. So I'm sorry if I sounded really angry. I mean, it's, you know, I'm unfortunately not that patient with people that, I mean, it, it's, you, there's no way that anybody that wasn't, there's no way that somebody as young as you could, um, you know, could experience or, or sort of understand the experience of living in New York at that time. And what it might have been like for Basquiat to live in that world, or for that matter, for me to live in that world. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's a long lost time. I don't think there'll be another quite like it. There were others like it uh, in the past, but that, it was kind of a little mini renaissance. And I don't, you know, there are other ways that we're having a, a renaissance now with social media and things like that. I mean, you know, life goes on, uh, creativity goes on, but... Um, I apologize if I sound irritated. It's just that I get really tired of people pushing that graffiti thing. I think it's unfair to Basquiat to just label him as a graffiti artist and the nuances of why he wasn't exactly a graffiti artist in the same way that other graffiti artists of his time who did reach some level of celebrity were. It's just too complicated to get into in a phone interview. So I just wanted to apologize if I sound irritated. I, I understand. Um, yeah, I, I was asking because to me, as a layperson, someone who uses spray paint cans and writes on walls with them sounds like they at least at some point in their lives were engaged in graffiti. So yeah, forgive me if I did not understand the subtleties. definition point of view, he was a graffiti artist because, yes, he literally painted on walls. But his aim was not the aim of the other graffiti artists that were tagging trains. It was sort of, he was right. kind of coming from a different place. Right, and and that's why I, I like talking to people so on the spot. That's why I was kind of differentiating. It's not wrong to classify him as a graffiti artist in the sense that he painted on walls, and that's how he started. Mm -hmm. But there was a whole graffiti movement at the time, and he wasn't really quite part of it. Neither was Keith Haring, 
or Richard Hamilton. Right, and, and learning these things is part of the reason why I reach out to people for these podcasts. So Yeah, no, I really, well, first of all, I want to thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Duncan, I want to thank you um, very much for giving me this opportunity to speak about Basquiat. If I sound angry, it's more that I'm sort of passionate, and part of it may be that I miss that time, and we live in such a difficult time now. But this time, too, has been a renaissance for artists in a different way because they've been forced into their studios um, where many of them have really thrived having the creative time to work. So... um, it really has nothing to do with you or right. the subject matter. It really is just a matter of the timing. I, I got gotcha. you. Thank you for the opportunity, yes. and I appreciate your reaching out to me. I, I respect passion. Thank you so much, Phoebe, for your time, and uh, take care. Right. Thank you to Phoebe Hoban, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.